welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Rebecca Watterson, a researcher on the project and PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource for Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Leverholm Trust funded early career researcher, Dr. Michael Robinson of Liverpool University about experiences of shell shock in Belfast during the Great War. Hi, Michael, welcome to this episode. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in shell shock? Yeah, thanks Rebecca. So as you mentioned yourself, I'm uh, currently researching uh, disabled First World War veterans um, with the Leverholm Trust, currently looking at um, them in Britain, Australia and Canada. But before this, I, I did my PhD on shell-shocked veterans in Ireland. And I suppose the long story is I was always interested uh, as a child about um, war soldiers, you know, the old war movies from the 50s and 60s, um, which I used to watch with my dad. But as I got older and went through university, I became much more interested in what happened to men when they got home, um, particularly Vietnam veterans. Um, watched The Deer Hunter when I was 17, 18 about these men who returned from war. Um, and yeah, I was just really captivated by the subject of, you know, post-war trauma. And around the same time as when I went to university, I studied Irish history for the first time at Newcastle University. I uh, obviously went to a British state school where Ireland just, in my recollection, wasn't mentioned at all. Um, and I did the Irish Revolutionary Period with Dr. Fergus Campbell. Um, and I just really enjoyed the subject. Um, and it was just this idea of these Irish soldiers. You know, I hadn't even realised myself that so many Irish soldiers had fought for the British Army during the First World War. And I just thought this story of what happens to them when they get home, I just thought was really interesting, um, really fascinating. There was a great journal article written, which I think I read in the third year of my undergrad by Joanna Bork, that compared um, Irish Great War veterans to Vietnam veterans who returned to America. And yeah, just from there, I was just gripped immediately thought there's a subject here to be written and then fortunately after that I was given PhD um, funding to undertake it at the Institute of Irish Studies at Liverpool and before that I was given um, grants to do it at MRES level at Northumbria Uni so I suppose that's the yeah that's the long answer I guess Rebecca. <laughs> it was really fascinating um, and really interesting the comparison between Vietnam and the Great War I've never even thought of that before. Um, so in 1917 the Belfast Asylum, located on the Falls Road in the west of the city, was converted for use and became the Belfast War Hospital. Why was this hospital converted and what can this tell us about attitudes towards soldiers experiencing shell shock? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the short answer, uh, Rebecca, is it was, it was uh, built out of complete necessity. Um, when Britain starts um, begins the First World War, it really is caught on a hop with regards to medical facilities. Um, and obviously, you know, um, artillery, mass citizen armies um, in the first six, uh, 12 months of the war. And very quickly, they realized that they need to improve um, medical facilities for men who were not physically injured, but showing mental uh, psychiatric uh, injuries. And one of the ways to do this uh, is to empty out uh, public asylums um, and this happens throughout the UK and Belfast Asylum and the Dublin Asylum is there uh, two of these asylums that um, the local residents uh, either get displaced completely or um, separate facilities are set up for soldiers. Um, and the treatment that was actually offered in them in the Belfast War Hospital and the Richmond War Hospital, the treatment was quite conservative, I would say, in terms of um, the soldiers weren't given any of the sort of progressive um, 
forerunner to the CBT treatment, which um, are represented in um, novels such as Return of the Soldier and things like that. Um, it was very much rest and recuperation. It was bed rest, um, you know, working on asylum grounds um, and things like that. Um, what was really interesting about the Belfast War Hospital was that soldier patients used to wear hospital blues, which was a pajama-like uniform, and they wore these um, hospital blues alongside the physically disabled um, soldiers, physically wounded soldiers. So for the first time, we see sort of a, a comparable treatment between physical and mental uh, wounds um, being demonstrated. Whereas in the past, if a soldier became mentally unwell, he was often discharged from the army and admitted into a lunatic asylum um, as a civilian. So we're seeing, even though the treatment is quite conservative um, in these war hospitals, we're starting to see um, the very first ventures into you know, mental health care that we're still grappling with, British Arms Services still grappling with today. Um, but what's interesting about Belfast in particular is usually uh, the facilities that are offered to soldier patients are far superior to um, the inpatient civilians um, who were transferred into overcrowded and dilapidated asylums. What's really interesting about Belfast is this is an exception to the rule where the local populace are transferred to the Purdysburn Villa Colony, which is usually established, and the soldiers go into the Falls Road Asylum. And when you read the records about the Belfast Asylum, where the men were treated, you get a sense that it was really dilapidated, really in need of, you know, not just a lick of pain, but really needed um, sort of, you know, abandoning, really. Um, it was probably the worst in terms of conditions um, in the UK. And that sets the Belfast War Hospital apart from anywhere else. And what's interesting about the end of the war, it's actually all uh, civilian lunatics in the NCN are actually all transferred to Purdysburn rather than Falls Road. So it's interesting that, you know, Belfast is quite a unique story when it comes to the war hospital. So the conditions in the hospital would have been, as you said, it was dilapidated. Um, it, was there a reason for the decision to send the soldier patients to the Falls Asylum as opposed to send them to the Purdysburn Villa Colony, which would have had better facilities? That's a really, I'm not, I'm not, the answer to that is I'm not sure about it. Um, unfortunately for the... Belfast War Hospital, there's very few records have survived. It actually stands in contrast to uh, the Richmond War Hospital in Dublin, where a lot more of its correspondence has survived. Uh, it's case book. One of its four have survived. One of four surviving case books have survived. Um, we know a lot more about the Richmond Asylum. Um, it's actually the one in Dublin is only 32 bed, whereas the Falls Road is in its hundreds. Um, but we don't actually know. Um, or if we don't know yet, uh, the records haven't actually um, appeared yet. That was one thing that was really interesting about uh, researching the Belfast War Hospital actually is um, getting in touch with Prawn in the public record office and trying to get you know to these records so we can answer questions like that and it might be just a case that they haven't um, sort of been discovered yet you know the Richmond Asylum were all hidden away in um, the Grange Gorman Museum and they were transferred I believe by the Wellcome Trust um, and then transfer transferred to the National Archives of Ireland. So hopefully we might have an answer to that one day, but at the moment, uh, I'm not too sure <laughs> because it's a really strange decision. The fact that, as I, uh, as I mentioned, it was only in Belfast where soldiers were actually put in an inferior facility to, um, and that only happens in Belfast, but an actual answer for why that was the case, I'm not sure. And you mentioned that the um, kind of treatment or the therapeutic interventions were very conservative um, and really consisted just of bed rest. Were there any other therapeutic interventions that existed 
Yeah, there was. It was because the British Army mental breakdown as a result of the war wasn't new. It uh, wasn't a new discovery during the First World War, but I think it was the first time when the British government really tried, or the British Army rather, really tried to get to grips with it. Um, it had appeared in the war in South Africa, and it had appeared in imperial um, conflicts and in foreign wars, such as the Russo-Japanese War. The British Army realised that a lot of men are breaking down without a physical wound. So I think it's a mistake to think that you know mental trauma, war-related trauma, came um, directly during the First World War. But I think it's the first time when the British government really tried to get to grips with it. And because it's the first time, you get a really inconsistent approach to shell shock. Um, you get the conservative treatment that was offered in Richmond and Belfast, where it was mainly bed rest and things like that, um, rest and recuperation. You get treatment where the men were very much seen as malingerers, um, trying to be, you know, there was a perception that they were shirking the responsibilities and the rush was to get them back to the front line. But you also have really progressive um progressive facilities where sort of a forerunner for cognitive behavioural therapies offered, and um, both during the war and in its aftermath, which was offered by the British government department, which looks after veterans called the Ministry of Pensions. And this is obviously very intense one-on-one sort of counselling therapy. Um, so we really see, yeah, conservatism with, you know, stigma also um, coexisting with progress and looking at the records. So for example, um, the facility in Liverpool very much offered um this sort of talk and therapy, this CBT forerunner, and reading the records in the Liverpool Record Office, you know, you get a sense that some soldiers could really benefit from. It was, you know, talking them through the trauma. Um, I really would uh, equate it to uh, being a forerunner to CBT therapy today. So, yeah, the long answer, uh, the short answer is it really would depend on where you're going, who was in charge of the hospital, and their outlook and their outlook would be reflected in the treatment that was offered. And you mentioned there... um some medical provisions in the post-war period what were the provisions made for veterans who perhaps were suffering from shell shock after the war and were these affected by the Irish War of Independence? Yeah thanks Rebecca there was uh, two uh, main provisions that were provided for um, shell shock veterans Um, they were under the diagnostic label neurasthenia it was a very broad uh, category diagnosis and it sort of incorporated shell shock um, it very becomes quickly apparent that the me- uh, medical officials and the military officials don't like this term shell shock because it wasn't always the shock of the shell that sort of um, a man would be struggling. Um, so in terms of provisions, um, one was a disability pension, which men could apply for. And this was on a graded scale um, from naught to 100%, where a board, usually of three men working for the Ministry of Pensions, which was the department which looked after veterans, and they'd interview a, a veteran um, interact with them they were the gatekeepers so to speak and they would literally grade him is he 100% disabled where he's suitable to be admitted into an asylum um or is it a 10 20% where he's struggling but he's still able to enter the labor market and the severity of the disability would equate to um how much money they were paid so if they were on 100% disability for example there'd be uh, I believe it was 40 shillings a week and that would be graded downwards um and yeah a lot of men 65,000 men in the UK in uh, 1921, we're receiving this pension <coughs> for, of some form for neurasthenia. And in addition to a pension, men were also offered the opportunity for medical treatment. And again, the Ministry of Pensions, particularly from 1918 to 1921, this is where this CBT therapy of its day was offered. Um, it was offered in inpatient outpatient facilities, one in Leopardstown, uh, Dublin, one in Craigavon, um, in North, for Northern Ireland, and outpatient treatment was offered in ministry headquarters or ministry offices and there was one in Cork for example 
Um, but yeah, in my research, I quickly found out that no matter how progressive these facilities were, and I do think they were more progressive than we maybe um, appreciated here, but there was just nowhere near enough to cater for demand, um, especially during the revolutionary period. Uh, waiting lists were incredibly high for the uh, for Ireland, much higher than elsewhere in the UK. Um, and then after 1921, and after the establishment of the Irish Free State in Northern Ireland, um, the British government, the Ministry of Pensions, very much give up on shell shock veterans. They think, well, if they're not cured by, say, 1922, then they're going to be, you know, unwell or incurable for a long time, and they're sort of pensioned off and left alone. So again, it's a real shame that these progressive facilities really stop in 1921. Um, but they, they did they did exist in Ireland, and uh, it was great to you know bring this out in my research because it was something that I, again I wasn't sure of myself until I got into the records. This is fascinating. Um, did any other factors affect the treatment of shell shock in hospitals in Northern Ireland? Yeah, uh, it did. It was uh, obviously during the revolutionary period, um, particularly we saw that, um, for example, um, the outpatient clinic, which was really one of the very few. Um, opportunities for men to receive outpatient care where they go in for a couple of hours a week and get this, you know, the CBT therapy of its day. That was actually shut for a few weeks during 1920 because of broader um, disturbances in the uh, city of Belfast. Um, and perhaps the most uh, infamous example in my book was when the Catholic soldiers had to discharge themselves um, from Craigavon, which was one of these inpatient facilities. You know, it was really the only refuge in the north where these men could, you know, uh, receive specialist inpatient care and they actually discharged themselves because they received death threats, um, sectarian death threats. Um, and it doesn't actually say where they were moved to, but I'm presuming it was they were transferred to Dublin. But I just thought that case study in itself was just really fascinating that you had these men who fought in a British Army uniform, fought all over, um, you know, fought in Gallipoli, fought on the Western Front, and then they returned to Ireland and they get embroiled in this wider sectarian tension and even get a death threat so even you know the, the service in the British army is still sort of subsumed within that and I just thought uh, if nothing speaks to you know the, the title of my book a difficult homecoming if nothing speaks to that more than that I just thought it was just a really fascinating case study and it's interesting actually because when I um, found that record and it was in um, the public record offered of Northern Ireland um, and since I've been founded other historians have picked up on it as well it's a real um, a really interesting case study I would say you know that these men um you know receive these death threats but not only that um even with regards to ministry of pensions officials who operate in northern ireland the very often they work as an all island especially during the refer uh, revolutionary period so they'll travel between obviously ulster and um and dublin and they're writing their correspondence we don't like traveling around ireland at this time you know a revolutionary period um they even want assurances that they'll get life um, insurance if anything should happen to them. Um, you know, obviously the railways are disrupted, postal services are disrupted during both the Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War, and that really slows things down with regards to pensions, medical care, you know, all this correspondence that needs to be sent. It really does get impacted really detrimentally uh, during the uh, Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War. And again, what I found really interesting in my research was the Ministry of Pensions, there's sometimes an idea that Irish veterans sort of returned to Ireland and were forgotten about and discarded. Whereas you see that Ministry of Pensions officials, you know, these civil servants working on behalf of the British government really do keep on working hard on behalf of veterans in Ireland. Um, you know, they haven't to put up with, you know, to say it was less than ideal work and, <laughs> work and circumstances, but 
you know, they're still plugging away. They're still working on behalf of them. Um, and um, I try and write my book that, you know, the effort of the Ministry of Pensions, especially the officials on the ground, I think they deserve a lot of credit. Um, and I think it speaks to this idea that they weren't just discarded and abandoned. You know, there was this sort of um, effort to help them, I guess, and to compensate for them. And that carries on way until the 1970s, 1980s. You mentioned um, the Ministry of Pensions board kind of grading the men um, based on kind of their disabilities. The the members of that board, were they medical professionals? Yeah, they were, especially with regards to shell shock. Um, they were um, very much, if it was a, a mental disability like shell shock or lunacy, the Ministry of Pensions used to bring in specialist officials. Whereas for things such as, I think I'm right in saying I'm going a little bit outside my expertise here, but I think with regards to physical injuries, Ministry of Pensions officials could very much dabble and judge different dis- physical disabilities. But when it came to psychiatric injuries and mental disabilities, um, yeah, they brought in medical professionals to work alongside Ministry officials. So in Ireland, it was, um, I forget his first name, but his second name, I think it was William Dawson or Graham Dawson, I forget which one. He was the head of the uh, Ministry of Pensions board and he would travel all across Ireland and judge and um, interact with claimants and he had extensive experience as a, um, a commissioner of, uh, of lunacy. And is it possible to estimate the numbers of soldiers who suffered with shell shock and were they all able to seek treatment? Yeah in terms of uh, specific numbers in the UK in 1921 the Ministry of Pensions write that around 65,000 men were receiving um, care in across the UK and I made a very 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 rough estimate that this might would have equated to around 12,000 throughout Ireland. Uh, that that was just me going off ratios and things like that, that, you know, so that could give or take a little bit. Um, so I wrote that it was around 12,000 uh, men in Ireland were receiving a pension for shell shock or neurasthenia. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the number who, this doesn't just speak to the men um, who suffered from trauma. I think the numbers, I think it's fair to say would probably be a, a lot higher. Obviously, you have um, at the time, you know, the stigma that attached to mental illness, um, this idea of stoic masculinity, stiff upper lip, which I think would have um, continued. And so I think a lot more men would have been eligible for an application for a pension. Um, We have in oral uh, histories, we have, um, you know, anecdotes of men wandering around the streets, homeless men. Um, In my own research, very often a man's claim for a disability pension wouldn't come from the veteran himself, but from a family member. Uh, especially wives, parents, things like that. So men who were on their own, um, I think, you know, there would have been a lot of men who were sort of lost to the system. Um, that's not to say that every man who returned home, you know, suffered from trauma and shell shock, but I think certainly more than 65,000. I think it's fair to say that, you know, there would have been a hell of a lot more than that. Um, and also the British government are quite clever. Um, as much as I'm praising them on the ground, but in Whitehall and in London, um, their first priority is public finance. So they actually put a seven-year time limit on claims. So from the late 1920s and into the 1930s, both in Ireland and in Britain, men find it very difficult to apply for a pension. And this is in um, contrast to Australia and Canada. So you have a lot of men, obviously, with mental illness who would have, you know, the the longer-term deterioration of war service, which comes to the fore when men come into the middle age, you know, and that's when they, you know... Um, they can have suffer a breakdown and things like that. Whereas even if it was war related, because of this seven year time limit on claims, it was very difficult for them to uh, to claim. And that's yeah, that's what my current research is looking at. And that that time limit um, 
would have affected their ability to claim their pension? Would it have affected their ability to access treatment? Yeah, yeah, it would have. Um, yeah, because um, both in Northern Ireland and uh, in the Irish Free State and in Britain, um, the re- Ministry of Pensions hospitals um, really reduce on a large scale and um, veterans were very much treated within public facilities with the Ministry of Pensions picking up the bill. And yeah, absolutely, as you get into the 1920s and the 1930s, that men are not only ineligible for a pension, but also for treatment, so they'd have to pay for it themselves and things like that. Um, Yeah, um, but what's interesting is um, the men who were still on the pensions roll, uh, the British government continues, especially in the Irish Free State, you know, obviously the Republic, um, men are still receiving the pensions up to the 80s, you know, 90s, um, still getting a pension for the service in the British Army. And, you know, if we put it into the day's payment, then it would have, you know, equated to, you know, possibly billions of pounds, which, again, I think is sometimes overlooked. In terms of the response post-creation of the Irish Republic, what's the response of the Irish government to the veterans when the British government are still supporting them through the Ministry of Pensions? Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. That's a, it's a really interesting uh, sort of debate that's going on in the historiography at the moment. In my own research, um, I argue that the Irish Free State government didn't discriminate against uh, disabled First World War veterans, but neither did they care very much. Um, they were very much, um, you know, it wasn't on their sacrifice that the uh, that the state was built. Um, and obviously they've got the National Army veterans who obviously defeated the anti-treaty IRA and they were sort of given preferential treatment. Um, but it's really interesting actually because the Irish government are really keen whenever money comes up from the British government to, uh, to continue um, financing uh veterans in the irish free state they're very keen to uh to forward those claims shall we say <laughs> um but yeah if you read the records of the ministry of pensions they very often look around and um, do tours of their irish free state and things like that and they very much say that it's not that the irish great war veterans forgotten um is discriminated against it's much more that they're sort of forgotten about and sort of uncared for and sort of unloved rather than specifically targeted and this um might speak a little bit differently to veterans during the Irish Revolutionary Period, where there's a debate whether they were targeted specifically because they were British ex-servicemen. Um, but again, in my own research, even though I pick up on this, um, you know, the British government do continue to pay a pension. Um, you know, they, they continued operating in Ireland as what was termed as an imperial obligation. And um, yeah, in my book, I try and argue that it wasn't perfect. There was prejudices involved. You know, they, they had these preconceptions of what the Irish soldier was like. But in terms of financial outlay, they sort of hold up their end of the bargain. Um, maybe not always happy to do so and feel that the Irish um, maybe have some biological predispositions to um, mental illness and things like that. That comes across time and time again in the records. But in terms of financial outlay, actually, you could argue that they maybe paid more in, in terms of relative ratios, more in the Irish free state than they did in Britain. And what are your reflections on the experiences of shell shock in Belfast and more widely on the island of Ireland during this period? Uh, yeah, to be, well, when I started, I was um, interested in veterans, um, you know, physically disabled veterans. And I think in my initial PhD application, um, I was interested in shell shock amongst many other disabilities. And then when I got into the records, I just realised very quickly that I just had to focus on one. So my reflections on the period, to be perfectly uh, honest, is there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, in my conclusion, uh, I did write, you know, that I've sort of engaged with Catholics in the North, Protestants in the South, engaged with it, but didn't concentrate on it. There's so much more to do there. You know, the differences between officers and privates. You know, the idea of, you know, class and things like that, 
you know, comparing Ireland to imperial territories of the British Empire, I think, um, and veteran care, I think, is an area. So I do think that in the last few years with regards to veterans, you know, in Ireland, I do think that there's more studies coming out. There's my own work. There's Paul Taylor's work. There's a recent book that I'm literally reading at the moment by Emmanuel Destiny, and he's looking at veterans during the Irish Revolutionary period. So my reflection was, to be honest, is that there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, and uh, it's a really exciting area of research, I would say. Um, I was really interested that when I was writing it um, and you get into the records and things like that, it's very difficult to paint the British government as a good guy or a bad guy, you know, and that sort of, when you do history at secondary school, you know, you do the Nazis, good guys, bad guys, we beat the Nazis, things like that. Um, British State School, the Ministry of Pensions, studying the Ministry of Pensions and studying the treatment of veterans. It's not like that at all. It, uh, you know, progress coexists with prejudice. Um, you know, financial help coexists with real stinginess. Um, even amongst the disabled veterans themselves, you know, there's tra tragedies where men kill themselves only in the 1930s and 1920s. But there's also triumphs where men with quite severe disabilities, you know, live really, you know, worthwhile, productive. Um, and of course, they suffer from the disabilities, um, but also there's lives. Um, there that's really worth highlighting uh, the positive aspects of it. I was lucky enough to identify a pension record of an Irish veteran um, and he returned to the Irish Free State and despite having 100%, 90% disability and really being recommended on numerous occasions for institutionalisation, you know, he gets a job, he gets married, he has children. I met up with his family, um, it's mentioned in the book and they had very, you know, fond memories of time spent together. So, it's sort of hard to paint a narrative, I guess. It's a uh, triumph, tragedy, um, progress and prejudice all rolled into one, I think, when it comes to studying the period. And where can people learn more about your work and the subject? Yeah, thanks. So I recently uh, published a book um, last year. It's in Manchester University Press, uh, Shellshock, um, British Army Veterans. Um, I don't even actually know the title of my own book. I'll have to have a look. <laughs> it's uh, Shellshock British Army Veterans in Ireland, 1918 to 1939. And that's in Manchester University Press's uh, Disability History Series. And yeah, that's the port of call. And I recently wrote an article on, uh, not so much specifically Ireland, which is what my book is, but I wrote an article in War and History. Uh, it was much more of a UK-focused study where I try to talk about the progress, more progressive nature of the Ministry of Pensions. I try to articulate in an article in War and History. And that was published in its recent volume which was published in February so I think yeah that's the two places that start if you're interested in reading more. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode Dr Robinson and for sharing some really fascinating insights on experiences of shell shock in Belfast during and after the Great War. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode as well as other ones in the series you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.